Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. So here's something clever. This is kind of a Trojan horse move, but without all that carpentry. Racism. It's bad, right? I think at least 98% of us can agree to that, or agree on that. Uh, We've all seen how our two political parties uh, seem to struggle with what to do about it, if anything. Um, I'm being generous there. Some folks know exactly what they would like to do to address racism. That said, what if you could do something that was pro-capitalism, pro-competition, pro-free markets, and also resulted in diminishing the impact of systemic racism? Can you imagine? Since the reverse seems to have been working, when you think about it, efforts to control compensation for athletes, certain frontline workers, etc., disproportionately impacts people of color. We're not racist. We just don't want to pay people who just happen to be people of color less because, you know, we can make more money that way. And we're all for profits. I'm for profits. We're all for capitalism. I'm for capitalism. But at what cost to society? At what point is, you know, too much, too much? And what point uh, does it start to have a corrosive effect on society, including businesses themselves? What can, of all things, antitrust law, the Sherman Act, which outlaws illegal monopolies and anti-competitive tactics like conspiracies to restrain trade, form cabals, cartels, syndicates. I always wanted to be part of a syndicate. What can antitrust law do about it? And what do wages have to do with antitrust? If only we could ask someone. Fortunately for you, we have someone on the podcast. He is Eric Kramer. He is chairman of Burger Montague and co-chair of the firm's antitrust department. He's got a national practice in the field of complex litigation, primarily in antitrust class actions. He's currently co-lead counsel in multiple significant uh, class actions across the country in a variety of industries. He's uh, responsible for winning settlements for his clients totaling well over $3 billion. That's a lot of dollars. Most recently, he's focused on representing workers claiming anti-competitive practices that have suppressed their pay, including cases on behalf of mixed martial arts fighters, luxury retail workers, and chicken growers. See, that's why he's on here today. He's received numerous accolades and awards. These uh, include terms like Titan, Elite Thought Leader, Visionary, and less dramatic but equally important, Lawyer of the Year. So Eric's got quite a bit. uh, he's He's widely recognized. I think that's the point of this. He's a summa cum laude graduate of Princeton University. I've heard of it. He earned a membership in Phi Beta Kappa. He graduated cum laude from Harvard School of Law or the Harvard Law School. Apparently, he was a good student and he was a good guest. So it's my pleasure to bring you Eric Kramer with Burger Montague. Hope you enjoy it. Eric Kramer, thank you very much for doing this today. It's an honor to be here. Looking forward to it. So let's see. I've already uh, introduced you, and I've set up the general topic. So let's just dive into the first question. 
what do these no poach agreements have to do with antitrust law? What's what's the connect connection or the connection? I'll learn to say it. The connection between <laughs> between personnel, salaries, and anti competition. Yeah, that's a, a good place to start. So antitrust law prohibits abuses of economic power in two basic ways. It prohibits monopolies from using their market power to exclude competition and maintain high prices or low wages. And the anti-monopoly part of antitrust law is called Section 2 of the Sherman Act. And antitrust law also prohibits companies from coordinating with each other to impose restrictions on competition in the free market. These are called agreements in restraint of trade, and they violate Section 1 of the Sherman Act, which prohibits things like price fixing. So that's the legal framework. Mm -hmm. No poach agreements uh, involve companies in the same labor market meaning they compete with each other for workers, coordinating not to recruit and sometimes not to hire each other's workers. So no poach agreements violate Section 1 of the Sherman Act. And the underlying economic theory of these cases is that when companies agree not to recruit or hire each other's workers, that agreement restricts both the mobility of workers, the ability of workers to go from one job to another, and the price information that workers get when companies bid for their services. So if workers are less mobile, um, maybe due to a, an agreement between the companies that compete with each other for their services, if they have few alternatives to present um, to their present jobs, companies will have less incentive to raise worker pay to keep the workers from leaving. And pay will remain low or stagnant. If workers have no means of learning about the availability of offers, and if companies in the same line of business are prohibited from, uh, by agreement for bidding for worker services, companies will not need to pay more to keep them and workers will naturally be paid less. So one important aspect of the effects of these kinds of no poach agreements that we see is that they not only keep the pay low of those workers that would, would be recruited or poached by another company, but they, and this is important, they also keep pay lower across the board at an entire company or even an entire labor market. There's a concept called internal equity. If you have a sibling, you understand the concept. If your sibling gets something and you don't, you'll think you've been treated unfairly. And the same for workers at companies. If someone at your level and your experience suddenly gets a pay raise because the company needed to pay her more to keep her after she was recruited, you will demand a raise too or get pretty angry and maybe leave. So to prevent strife, and worker departures, companies try to bet their best to pay similar workers similar amount of pay with similar experience. So if the pay of a few workers goes up because they were recruited, pay tends to go up across the board. And if companies manage to stop worker mobility and worker information with no poach or no hire agreements, they can keep pay lower across the board for all their workers. And so the bottom line of these agreements is that competition between companies over workers benefits all workers. And if competition is restricted by these kinds of no poach or no hire agreements that we see in the marketplace, all workers are hurt. I got it. Um, well, how um, how did no poach agreements uh, exacerbate this problem? Um, you've explained some of that clearly. So in so what are the risks if they're allowed to be commonplace? You, you've, you've described some of them, but do you have some other specific risks? Yeah, I mean, again, no approach and no higher agreements. Again, they restrict competition over workers, and that keeps salaries lower across the board. The risks if these agreements were to become more common, and they are pretty 
common, we see them everywhere, is, again, less worker mobility, less worker options, and lower pay for everyone. In the high-tech industry, for instance, in a case I was involved in, the leaders of Apple and Intuit and Intel and other high-tech companies decided that it wasn't good for any of those companies to be outbidding each other for talent. And so they decided to, to agree not to do that. And it helps the companies, obviously. They can pay people less. They have less turnover. But it hurts all the workers. Uh, and, and the more companies do this, the less workers get paid and the more wages stagnate. And, and we've been seeing this across markets in many different industries. Uh, companies have trouble keeping them, themselves <laughs> from not agreeing with their rivals. And so we see it across markets, and it's one of the reasons why I think pay has stagnated, uh, and and the government has tried to get rid of them in order to stop these encumbrances on the ability of worker pay to go up. Okay, it doesn't apply to CEO pay, of course, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> it, it does not, and and then one of the reasons is why is that their CEOs are constantly being recruited, and there's a constant threat of CEOs going from one company to another, and. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't apply it to themselves. They only apply it to the, the lower level workers. <laughs> CEOs are free to go. Yeah. Uh, and well, unless they have these golden handcuffs where they get paid hundreds of millions of dollars if they if they leave or if yeah. they're fired. Yeah. Yeah. I understand why that why their numbers get so high because like you said, they'll just be taking away. And if you get a, a big name CEO, it's gonna be great for stocks, it'll be great for all this stuff. But on the other hand, yeah. It, well, it, it may or may not. It, it, there, I know there's been studies that show that that uh, there's not a good correlation between worker between CEO pay and the uh, and stock growth. So I, I think. Oh, okay. And some of that has been debunked. Uh, CEOs just uh, are able to negotiate for themselves higher pay because their friends are on the board and. Okay. Uh, other reasons, uh, <laughs> that okay. are not subject to this podcast, but no, no, uh, that but CEOs and people of that ilk have benefits that the average line worker does not. Right. So, what is the government doing, and what are firms, frankly, like uh, Berger Montag, doing with regard to restrictions on employee mobility in in the context of promoting competition? So, the government and firms like. Uh, like mine, uh, even the government under the prior administration had been relatively aggressive in challenging no poach agreements. Um, and firms like mine are increasingly representing workers against companies where these agreements have been found to exist. In one of my cases, for example, we represent luxury retail workers at Saks, and we allege that Saks agreed with a number of retail brands like Prada Gucci and Louis Vuitton, that none of those companies would hire Saks workers due to a no hire agreement between Saks and those companies. And interestingly, one way we found out about this agreement or alleged agreement is that one of our clients who worked for Saks brought an EEOC charge of discrimination against Louis Vuitton for refusing to hire her. And Louis Vuitton said in response at the EEOC, oh, no, no, we didn't fail to hire this person the cost of their race, we didn't hire this person because we had an agreement with Sachs not to hire their workers. So in the course of defending against a discrimination suit, their lawyer admitted an illegal no poach agreement or what we allege is an illegal no poach agreement. Um, and so based on that evidence and other evidence, we brought a case challenging that no hire agreement. But we now have uh, cases 
challenging no poach and no hire agreements in several industries. We represent uh, broiler chicken growers against chicken integrator companies, where we allege, uh, among other things, a no poach and no hire agreement um, um, uh, against the chicken integrator companies. And we have several other kinds of cases in that area. And there, it's a it's an expanding area of law. Okay, so I don't think most people connect uh, antitrust law to to no poach agreements, but uh, certainly experts or people who are deeply involved in it, like you are, see it. Um, it's not obvious to everybody, but you, you also see a connection between antitrust law and discrimination. You you co-wrote a paper with Josh Davis and others on the subject. Um, and Josh Davis, I, I'll, I should say, recently joined Berger Montague to open your San Francisco office. He's also a professor at UC Hastings. But the paper I'm referring to is titled Antitrust as Racism, Antitrust as a Partial Cure for Systemic Racism and Other Systemic Isms. Uh, I'll, link to an, uh, I'll link to that article in the show notes. But can you describe the connection here between antitrust and racism? What, what are the two concepts have in common? Yeah, and there's there's no uh, obvious connection, but in, in our study and in our work, we determined that there was a significant connection. And yet, yeah, Josh Davis, we're happy that he just joined us, and he spearheaded this article with me and then two uh, associates here, Reggie Streeter and Mark Suter, and we all worked together on the article and now have presented it in various forums to uh, and have, have had a lot of interesting feedback. So, what's the what's the answer here? Antitrust attacks systems and markets, especially where companies abuse power, either unilaterally as monopolies or coordinating with each other like cartels. And racism includes the systemic oppression of a particular group who is disfavored in society for one historical reason or another. Uh, Almost all or all bad reasons, obviously. Mm -hmm. Economic systems involving abuse of power hurt everyone on the wrong end of the power imbalance. But here's the key. They disproportionately hurt those who are, the, who are the subjects of systemic racism. So abuses of economic power can have the same effects as racism and can propagate racial imbalances in systems, markets, and society. And given that antitrust is about power imbalances and racism and systemic racism is the result of a systemic power imbalance, we looked at how antitrust can be used to alleviate racial imbalances and inequities. Gotcha. So what, what does uh, antitrust law bring to the fight for racial equality? Um, where, where does employment discrimination law fail? Uh, you and your you and your co-authors wrote about five potential advantages antitrust laws have over employment discrimination laws. But let's tackle the first one. What does antitrust law bring to the fight for racial equality? Or to put it differently, what does it bring to the fight for racial equality that employment discrimination law may not? Antitrust, again, fights abuses of economic power in a systemic way and can be an excellent tool to fight racism. Antitrust takes on the root causes of some of that power that undergirds racist systems or racial inequities. And it does so, and here's the key, I think, in facially neutral way by being based on based on race-neutral economic principles that has the benefit often of being more acceptable across the ideological spectrum. And antitrust cases can be brought on behalf of all workers in industries where the workers are disproportionately minority or women, for, minorities or women, for example. And in those cases, 
racially neutral economic principles can result in more racial justice. More money and, pow and power to all workers in that situation, where the workers are disproportionately minority women, would mean more money and power for those in traditionally marginalized groups. So what about discrimination cases? Let me address those specifically. We don't argue that discrimination law and discrimination cases are not important and don't serve important ends or have important effects. They certainly do. There's a role for discrimination cases in discrimination law. My firm does them. They're extremely important and they've extremely they've um they've achieved extremely important things in society. Instead, we argue that antitrust has the ability to address certain problems caused by racism and racist systems in ways that might have significant benefits, sometimes benefits in certain cases over discrimination cases. For instance, employment discrimination cases compares workers to each other. They say that men get paid more for the same job as women, or whites for the same job as blacks. Or they claim that a white person got hired instead of a black person on account of racism. The solution there may well be that in the future, the black person rightfully gets hired and the white person doesn't. So at times, discrimination cases can seem like a fight over a fixed quantity of jobs or goods or money. Antitrust has the benefit, however, of confronting economic systems and economic imbalances. And it deals with labor versus capital. In the antitrust case on behalf of workers, where the class is disproportionately minority, all the workers can benefit, majority and minority alike. Antitrust can, can raise the tide, which lifts all boats. But the case, uh, even though it, it affects everyone equally, it can still achieve racial justice because, again, there's a disproportionate share of workers are from historically disadvantaged groups, they benefit disproportionately from taking money from capital and giving it to the workers. And antitrust might be able to accomplish its goals in a way that could well be more acceptable to the general population, and thus be could be in certain cases more effective in, in achieving anti-racist ends. I think the key is that antitrust can be more politically potent, potentially, by appearing race-neutral and being based on free market principles across the ideological spectrum. And then you and your authors, as I said, wrote about five potential advantages that antitrust laws have over employment discrimination laws. Can you walk us through those? The first is individual employers and actions versus systems. Uh, employment discrimination laws tend to focus on individual employers and individual employment decisions, whereas antitrust law focus on systemic effects in the market as a whole. Employment discrimination cases focus on specific employers or manage, managers making specific decisions. It's more localized, and sometimes even individualized. Antitrust focuses on markets, so it can fix problems in a market-wide way or a systemic-wide way and focus less on the individual and more on the system and markets. Another distinction we drew is income versus capital. Employment discrimination law focuses on disparities in pay. Antitrust law can address harms that flow from disparities in capital. The point here is to focus more on systemic imbalances of owners and capital versus workers and labor. Because owners tend to be whiter on average and workers tend to be more disempowered and minorities on average, focusing on these systemic imbalances, as antitrust can do, will naturally benefit those in historically disadvantaged groups. And I think the NCAA cases, where the athletes are predominantly minority and the administrators and coaches are predominantly white and male, and we can talk about those, 
are a good example of this income versus capital issue. The, f- the third distinction we drew is apples to apples versus apples to oranges. Uh, discrimination cases tend to pit workers against each other, apples to apples. They compare groups of workers sorted by racial or gender identity. Antitrust, on the other hand, addresses disparities between workers as a whole, apples, to management or capital as a whole, oranges. Antitrust can thus focus on how disparities in economic power lead to disparities in wealth. And again, because blacks and disempowered people are disproportionately on the worker side, addressing those imbalances can address some of these symptoms and effects of racism. The fourth distinction we drew was dividing the pie versus enlarging the pie. And we've already talked a little bit about that, but building on prior points, any trust, if successful, will raise the pay and power of all workers at a company or even in an entire market. Discrimination cases tend to result in a different way of allocating the same amount of pay to different groups of workers. So you take pay from the white group and you give it to the black group, for example, and that that may well be the equitable result. But under antitrust, you take money from capital and you give it to workers and all workers benefit. A rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and, and whereas in discrimination, some people or groups are lifted up at the expense of others. And that may well be, again, the equitable result. But the benefit of antitrust is you're going to benefit the white and black workers alike. All workers are going to benefit. And that will be potentially more effective solution and more palatable solution uh, to across the ideological spectrum. And then the, f- the final contrast we drew was, uh, or import of antitrust law we drew was, antitrust is based on centrist economic principles. Antitrust cases and enforcement are based on well-accepted principles generally understood and accepted as neutral about free markets and fair competition. Antitrust cases are not explicitly race-based, and so they don't carry sometimes the same stigma as race discrimination cases can. Saying the economic system has racial inequities built into it for historical or other reasons may well have less sting to people, the judges, to the population, the jurors, than calling particular people or particular companies racist. So antitrust has the ability to evade or elide some of the cultural war issues that discrimination cases can get us into. Now, we may need to get into those issues because discrimination clearly does happen. But I think what we're trying to point out is that antitrust has some benefits. It can solve some of these problems in ways that might be more effective and politically palatable in certain cases. Yeah. Yeah. The, the article uh, talks about the, the power disparities versus unequal treatment of different disempowered groups, and that includes white people. So, it gets into some hot button issues, as you said. It gets into critical race theory, which is, you know, <laughs> that draws lightning like no other, and and union organization. Uh, can you tell us what you all discussed there? Yeah, we discussed how imbalances of economic power can lead historically disadvantaged groups to suffer in terms of pay, promotion, and benefits, and where markets are concentrated and where firms coordinate to restrict pay or mobility of workers. All workers suffer at the hands of capital. And again, antitrust can remedy that in a systemic way. It can, it can work on behalf of, of, of labor, of unions. It could work on, on behalf of, of um, entire groups of workers. And it can cause solidarity among the, the workers together rather than pit them against each other. 
and um, and it can it can solve some of these systemic racial inequities using again breach neutral principles, economic principles that that other folks that 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 people get behind, and it can avoid again some of these problems that antitrust can. I mean that 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 causing calling people or companies racist will get us into. Uh, even where they are racist, uh, it can it can elide those issues. So I think that's that's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to figure out a way to solve some of the country's problems and markets' problems by avoiding some of the culture war issues that maybe discrimination issues would get us into. And I think you know we might we may get to this, but the the sports cases and the NCA cases are a good example of that. And you're talking about in one case where the collegiate athletes fought for compensation for uh, all their work that brings in tons of money to universities. What would you say about those? I think what I would say about those cases, especially the NCAA cases, is only antitrust can make Justice Kavanaugh sound woke. And so <laughs> what's, my, what my, what's my example of that? This is a quote from his very interesting concurrence in the nine to zero unanimous Supreme Court decision upholding the decision that NCAA restrictions on education related benefits for college athletes violated the antitrust law. Um, and uh, here's what he said. And this is a quote again from his concurrence that's much more aggressive in challenging the cartel than the main opinion. He says the bottom line is that the NCAA and its member colleges are suppressing the pay of student-athletes who collectively generate billions of dollars in revenues for colleges every year. Those enormous sums of money flow to seemingly everyone except the student-athletes. College presidents, athletic directors, coaches, conference commissioners, and NCAA executives take in six- and seven-figure salaries. Colleges build lavish new facilities, but the student-athletes who generate the revenues, and here's what he says, many of whom are African-American and from lower-income backgrounds, end up with little or nothing. So here we have a conservative Supreme Court justice identifying the manifestations of systemic racism. This case wasn't a discrimination case. NCAA's policies are not racist on their face. They prevent all college athletes from being paid for their work, regardless of their race, creed, or origin. But Justice Kavanaugh recognizes a critical fact. The students are disproportionately black. And while he doesn't say it, we all know the beneficiaries of the policy, the administrators and the coaches, uh, and those who benefit from the lavish facilities are disproportionately white. And to me, this is our point in a nutshell, that by using race-neutral principles, like competition and free markets, by challenging systems rather than individual companies or schools, by contrasting labor with capital rather than labor with itself, by seeking to expand the pie for all workers rather than shifting from some and giving to others. Antitrust has the ability to change systems and lead to more equitable outcomes. And we, I think we see that in the NCAA cases where the college basketball players and football players um, are disproportionately black and um, have been restricted in their ability to be compensated for their work, their dangerous work, uh, and the beneficiaries of that have been disproportionately white consumers 
and white administrators. And the, uh, the and we see antitrust trying to solve some of those problems that maybe a discrimination kind of claim wouldn't be able to solve. So I think we see that in the NCAA sports cases. Um, I, I am lead counsel in a case against the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, where the class includes many minority fighters um, and we're, we're attempting to, uh, we're, we're claiming that the UFC is a monopoly and engaging in monopolist practices by excluding rivals. And there too, what we see is the ability to use antitrust to lift up uh, a class that includes many minorities, but benefit all of the workers, all of the fighters against capital. So that's another example, I think, in sports. And you see that across the board in a lot of the different uh, cases brought by free, brought to bring free agency into sports in baseball, in basketball, in football. A lot of those cases initially were brought based on antitrust principles. And those cases ended up broadly benefiting all of the workers where the workers are disproportionately black and other minorities. Yeah, and I'll just insert, I'm going to talk out my ear and, and no one will stop me, but <laughs> but it does remind me when I whenever I hear of opposition to, uh, let's let's just put people in buckets, let's say you're just super conservative and blah, blah, and you're, um, which isn't, this isn't a bad thing, but if you, let's just say that you don't like laws that deal with race because you have to admit that there's a racial problem or something. Um, my, 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 I was always thinking that well, what if you just look at people as revenue centers, you know, like the better educated everyone in the country is, the more money they will make, the more uh, taxes they will pay, the more stuff they'll buy, um, and the fewer who will be a drain on whatever, I don't know, welfare or, or, or things like – or incarceration and things like that. So so in, so in a way, um, what you're doing is you're separating the racial issue with antitrust um, – in a big way and saying, well, look, let's just look, let's just look at this from a completely from a business standpoint. And, and, and so that makes it more, as you said, palatable for, for some. And then it reminds me too of the reverse that happened in uh, North Carolina, where it was the, was the Republican party was discriminating against what they said were Democrats, but clearly what they were doing was identifying uh, pockets of the state where, or they were predominantly minority. They're saying, well, we're not discriminating against black people. We're discriminating against Democrats. But in North Carolina, <laughs> if you yeah. were if you were in a minority group, you were a Democrat. You know, uh, the Court of Appeals uh, did see through that finally. So there's a case where I think it was used in reverse. Let's, let's separate race for a minute. Let's just go after Democrats. It's like, okay, well, they're all minorities. Right. No, that's a, that's a good point. They did attempt to there, there's a lot of, in terms of voting rights, there's there's the attempt to mask racist intent by um, with by by covering it and seemingly not neutral. This is partisan, but by, by saying it's more partisan than racist. But yeah, right. I, I hear you on that. Okay, so what what are some of the key takeaways, if you could, uh, in this case, in the context of antitrust law and anti-racism? Yeah, I mean, I think the the bottom line for me is that I think that policymakers and lawyers in my position who are trying to part fix racial imbalances and and make the country a better place to live and work, mm-hmm. I have to use all the tools in our in our tool shed. And 
clearly discrimination cases and discrimination law is one of those are one of those tools that need to be used both by government agencies and private parties and private and nonprofits. But also antitrust, I think, is an important tool that can be used by government agencies and by private uh, parties as private attorneys general in the kinds of class actions that I do or in other kinds of antitrust cases or antitrust public policy to try to fix systemic imbalances in society. And wherever you can fix systemic imbalances in society, um, you're going to, by its very nature, you're going to help solve racial inequities because you have a situation for historical and other bad reasons where the, the minorities, the um, dis- disempowered people, almost by definition, are, are on the bottom and disproportionately on the bottom anyway. And so if you can fix these economic problems and systemic problems with antitrust, you can take money from capital and give it to labor. You can stop capital from coordinating each other at, with each other to harm workers. You can stop capital from coordinating each other to harm consumers in price fixing. In other cases, you can stop monopolies from coordinating uh, with themselves from, from using exclusionary policies to, to keep out competition. Uh, you can fix these systemic problems in the economy, and that will, um, we hope, have a chance of fixing economic inequities and therefore racial inequities and make the country a better place to be and live and work. Well, Eric Kramer, thank you very much for talking to me about this. These are great insights, and um, I know it's going to make people think, so we're going to get it out there and see how many people we can make do that. Yeah, these are uh, great questions. I appreciate you having me on. It's good to talk to you. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. I want to thank Eric Kramer of Berger Montague for sharing his insights with me today. The Emerging Litigation Podcast is a co-production of HB Litigation, my company, and Law Street Media, David Nair, Editor-in-Chief. It is the audio companion to the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, which is published by Fast Case Full Court Press, Morgan Wright, Publisher, Tom Hagee, Editor-in-Chief. Yeah, that's me. If you have any questions or would like to participate in one of our programs, please write to me. You can reach me at editor at litigationconferences.com. Thanks for listening today.